Hey guys, it's Thursday, or maybe not Thursday, because you don't have to listen to this on Thursday, but for me it's Thursday, so you guys know what that means, it's mentally chill time. Welcome to the show, I'm your host Kristen Carney, and I hope you guys are doing well, I hope you're all doing okay. If you're listening to the show, you may not be, but you could be very soon into the future, or in an hour, or in two years, but it could come and it will come. So be positive if you're not feeling positive today. Not that I'm a positive person, but I feel like I don't really say that much on the show because I took away the pep talk. So there's a pep talk at the beginning, and that's as peppy as I'm getting. But I want to, of course, give a huge thank you to my new Patreon peep. Notice it's not plural, just peep, but it's an extra special thank you because this person, Raven, thank you so much such a massive huge generous donation i am um you know uncomfortable with it but also accepting so thank you so much and i'm going to reply to your email as i already replied to your email saying i'm going to reply to your email so this is my second time telling you today i will reply to your email because i have a lot to say but thank you so much for donating and it's been about two months on Patreon and sponsors continue to support the show. So everyone who signed up generally is still there. I think maybe we've lost one or two people. Uh, But the positive messages I've gotten makes me feel closer to all the listeners. And as people have shared more on the community board, the gaps continue to get smaller. And mentally chill listener, Jesse, hey Jesse, he'll be helping out with the Patreon page by providing further content about topics that have been covered on the shows so you guys can use Patreon as a resource. So thank you so much for supporting the show. And all it takes is a 2 or $3 bid to join the Patreon community. And hopefully I will see you guys there. But today I'm going to talk about that negative voice that we all experience. If you're here and you've never had a negative voice, then you're probably hate listening to the show. <laughs> Um, But I think we can all relate to that super loud negative voice that should actually sound like like a pussy, but sounds so strong that it's hard to not listen to that voice. And the reason I'm talking about this is because on the Patreon page, I do mini pods. And this week, I wanted to talk about uh, the negative voice. Excuse me, that was a burp. Um, <laughs> that's not awkward. Um, and the uh, the mini pods are usually about six, between six to seven minutes and 15 minutes. And so this one was 13 minutes, I think. I realized as I was talking about it that it was much more of a plentiful topic than I had expected when I just started to quickly mention it on the mini pod. So I don't think the 13 minutes on the Patreon page was enough to cover all the stuff about negative voices. And um, I have to be I have to be really thankful here. I don't know. I'm not I'm not positive. I don't know what's happening today. This is this is not me. Please don't get any uh, ideas about me being a happy go lucky person. That's not the case. However, I have to say I've been incredibly lucky to have a family that didn't have a negative voice to me. And so the only negative voice that I really had to deal with, I mean, outside of, you know, mean kids in school, really the only negative voice I had to deal with was my own. I think we're all our harshest critics, 
but I do feel a extra bit of sympathy or a lot of extra sympathy for people who have a negative voice, but also have negative voices in their real lives. And I did, I mean, I did definitely deal with that, but I'm going through a little bit of a phase right now where I'm getting a lot of support and a lot of positive feedback. And of course, the negative voice is still there and still being the asshole that it is. But it's easier to manage because I'm not getting it from the outside world as much anymore. And so, um, and with that being said, it's still incredibly difficult to manage. So when I used to go to therapy, so I've had two therapists. The first therapist I had, she was, she was really cool. Um, and one of the things that she did do that I did get something out of, because I would say, I don't know if I'm going to lot out of therapy. I like the people, but I just don't really feel like I'm walking away with tools or anything like that. Um, but the exercise that my first therapist would do with me a lot was focus on trying to squash this negative voice that I have. And so we would do um, uh, a little exercise in therapy. I wish we were actually doing actual exercise that might actually be better than therapy, but we would do this exercise where I would sit next to myself which is not physically possible, but in your mind, you sit next to yourself and there's two of you and there's the logical you and then the negative evil voice you. And she would have me speak as both people. I felt a little creepy. Like it made me feel like I was in the exorcist or something. Um, Cause there's like, ah, my mean demon side. And then like the regular side. And luckily I could, um, I didn't, you know, like spew like projectile vomit or anything or, or float up to the ceiling. But it did feel just slightly uncomfortable, kind of like this podcast does. And I would, she would ask me to speak from the negative point of view first. So I would say something like, um, you have nothing to offer. You have no talents and you're not a smart person. And I mean, okay, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So I would start on something like that. I could go on and on and on and on. And she would probe the negative voice further. Why, why are you worthless? Or why do you have nothing to offer? Or why do you have no talents? Or tell me about why you think you have no talents. And then I would get even harsher. So I would say, because I've tried a million different things and nothing works out. And I don't get anywhere. And it's like the universe reinforcing that I don't have anything to offer. And no one likes me and no one accepts me because I have nothing to offer. And so there's proof there. So it's like she would look for proof. But then I'm like, I'm therapist. You're actually kind of now making me believe this stuff. Um, But then I would have to talk from the other point of view, which was the reasonable, logical side which boring am I right but I would have to say something like okay I do have talents if I if I didn't I wouldn't have anyone listening to my podcast or um I wouldn't have people telling me they think I'm funny or 
I know I am funny. It's not that I need people telling me that I am. I do know that I'm funny. And I know it in my soul and in my heart. And so that would be the logical side. But what was weird and hard is that the logical side has way less to say than the negative side. And so I would feel a little bit deflated or dis- like discouraged from going, oh, God. Negative is so much broader and bigger. And, and, uh, but it did, what it did do, I mean, it didn't cure me. That was years ago and I'm still going through it. But what it did do was open my eyes to the other perspective. And there is a part of a negative voice I think that's healthy, you know, because if you're just telling yourself you're great all the time, you're the world's biggest asshole and you back into a parking space, but not even back in, you take up two spaces and back, be backed in, you know, so it's like, you don't want to be too good to yourself because you'll do shit like that. But you also want to be able to live a happy, healthy life. And when you have that negative voice, that's kind of unlikely. So my most recent therapist, she um, she was really cool as well. But she helped me label my negative voice. But I don't know if we actually declared that as my negative voice. Basically, we declared that there's two of me. Maybe I mentioned this on a previous podcast. Maybe I didn't. Sorry if I did. But my negative self is Kristen. That's me. I feel like that's the more authentic person. And then my sassy, ballsy, confident self is Christina. And the reason we came up with that was because if someone calls me Christina because my name is close enough to Christina, I feel like a totally different person so if someone's like oh I'm sorry like when they realize they called me Christina and it's Kristen I'm like no it's fine go with it I'm way more confident as Christina because to me there's something about a Christina that she might be tougher or she might be sassier or she might be like I picture her to be like Italian and like a toughie and I'm part Italian but I'm not a toughie and so in the most recent Uh, sessions with or in the most the sessions with my most recent therapist we would say there's Christina and there's Kristen and she would point out when she would see Christina and then she would point out when she saw Kristen and the key was to bring out more of Christina but also morph it back into Kristen you know like it's almost like if you um, go to the eye doctor and they play with the things and you start seeing two like double vision and then they move move it and adjust it until it lines up and becomes one letter that you're looking at that's kind of what my therapist was hoping for with Kristen and Christina to kind of just overlap and become one and hopefully maybe someday that'll be possible doesn't always feel possible today I mean like that I've been a little bit more positive Um, So you would think out of all days, I'd say I do think it's possible. If I were to say it, it would be now. But um, I guess I don't see that as totally possible because as you get older, you learn that life is never going to be perfect. And I think Christina and Kristen would really only overlap and become the same person if life could be perfect. And I think we try as much as we can to get it to line up. But I'm not going to be expecting it to line up I'll aim for it but I don't think it's going to happen um but the negative thing like 
it's that started when I was younger and I don't know if I didn't have it start when I was younger if it would be easier to um get rid of because it's so ingrained in my brain it's the way I've thought literally since I was three years old so I just did a podcast called terribly funny which you can listen to on iTunes if you google it I think it's in some other spots as well but the link is on my Twitter but I talked about being a kid with a lazy eye at the age of three and then I also actually talk about that on another podcast called story worthy which is coming out in like two weeks um and I had my eye cross at three years old and so my negative self-talk started so young and so early I don't know you know I see these girls in California I don't see them as much anymore but when I first moved to LA I was doing brand ambassador work which uh sucks your soul out if you have one um but anyway I would go to these events these different events like I one when I worked was at the U.S. Surf Open so I was kind of thrown into this world of California which is not where I grew up I grew in upstate New York where we're not near the city you guys all heard me talk about it it's as basic as you get we don't have a Starbucks it's you know Dunkin Donuts is the only place for coffee you guys have heard me talk about it I don't know why I'm so obsessed with that fact but basically salt to the earth and by salt to the earth I mean kind of racist but anyway I didn't grow up around kids that had rich parents and were born with suntans and blonde hair and blue eyes and Mercedes and whatever. I didn't, that wasn't what I was around. So when I came here and I saw these like 14 year old girls who had perfect, perfectly cool blonde hair that just kind of flipped to one side and were wearing string bikinis again at 14 years old but also looking amazing I'm not a perv I promise but this is the Harvey Weinstein hour on Mentally Jill uh but they everything just looked like it fell together for them so easily and I would look at those girls as a 25 year old and go oh my god I can't imagine what a dick I would be today if I grew up looking like that with all of those things and all of these friends but and I didn't and I wouldn't have wanted to grow up like that because I think having hardships and a negative voice gives you character and gives you a point of view and gives you something to wake up your soul uh but I had it so polar opposite of those girls in terms of my looks that that negative voice became so loud and so like bigger than my glasses essentially like that's how big the voice was and I have really big glasses uh or thick I should say thick 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 hair frizzy huge thick hair uh, just awkward I I think I'll I think I might have posted it on no I haven't I'll post a picture of truly how horrifying I looked as a kid. I looked like I was rescued from a polygamous compound um, yeah, where the parents were brothers and sisters and married each other um, with their eight other wives. Like, i not just basic polygamist child, but like an inbred polygamist child. But what that did was just make my negative voice um, the only, 
only thing that I ever heard. It wasn't even like my negative voice. It was the only voice. And I knew from a really young age. And my when my eye crossed, I had surgery. And then my uh, whites of my eyes for a few weeks were filled with blood from the surgery. And I, I felt like a monster. So that was the perception I had of myself. And I held on to that for a really long time. And I still continue to hold on to that. It was like a cartoon, cartooned version of myself in my head. Rather than being this kind of awkward, I, you know, anyone else who would have seen me, it's like, oh, this poor little awkward kid who looks really awkward. But in my mind, it was like, I looked like Pygmalion, who's, I don't even know who that is, but I think it's like a funny name for a creature. But I looked like in my head, I was just this like, like hunchbacked, bloodshot eyed monster who wasn't that great at school either. So I didn't have, I wasn't finding any self-esteem. And nowadays, the negative voice I'm learning is not very attractive because I'm dating. And someone that I dated for a little while said, you're so self-deprecating and it's not good. It's too much. But then I said, but if I don't self-deprecate, I don't have anything to talk about. Maybe I should read news. I don't know. But it's almost like, in a way, I identify so much with that negative self-deprecating side that that's how I how I like to now be perceived by the world, which I don't really want to be perceived by the world that way. It's just the only thing that I know. And if I cut out, so say you drink soda all the time. Say you cut out those like four cans of soda you drink a day. I mean, that's excessive, I mean, but maybe it's not. But okay, say three cans. Say you have three cans of Diet Coke a day or regular Coke with all the calories. If you just cut that out, you're eliminating so many calories and eventually you'll get smaller, which is a good thing. So it works in that scenario. But me eliminating my, my negative self-talk would be el- eliminating part of me but I need that part of me it doesn't seem like healthy weight to lose because that's all my that's all I don't know I basically just feel like that's the only thing I have to offer and and so if I take away those statements those things that I would say say on a date or when I meet someone new it would just be filled with silence and I don't like silence so maybe I think it would take too much sorry I burped again I had I just had pizza um but I think maybe it would take so much work to get rid of the negative voice and replace it with something new that I don't want to do the work or I get rid of all of that and then I feel like I lose myself. It's like, I don't think I'd be funny if I lost my negative voice or my self-deprecating voice. It's my little Woody Allen thing minus the marrying the daughter thing. You know, it's it's like if you took away Woody Allen's negative voice or neuroticness there'd be no comedy left so in a way I feel like I need to keep the negative self-talk to keep the comedy because I'm sorry but I've seen comedians that aren't self-deprecating and are very confident and I don't think they're funny I think they're assholes so I don't know so it's like a balance I always think a balance is the most healthy thing I think it's the most healthy thing in politics I think it's the most healthy thing in eating drinking like I I can't date 
I mean, or maybe I could, but, and this is kind of off the topic, but I don't really ever want to date a sober person, not because I'm not proud of them for becoming sober, but because I enjoy balance in my life. And that's not balance because there's none of it. And it's better for them because they obviously can't control themselves to have the balance. So it's obviously healthier to not do it at all. But I need a little bit of it. So anyway, basically, I think even if there's negative things, I think you don't want to lose all of those things. It's the balance, you know, so it's like if you hate yourself just a little bit, just a little, it gives you character and I, like I think there's a little health, like I think there's healthy shame that keeps people funny and keeps people um, trying to get better and, you know, like I don't like, I don't know if there's like a t-shirt or something that said like no shame or I don't know, like. I don't think we should really shame each other, but I do think we should all have our own personal shame. If you're just like masturbating all day and you have no shame about it, sorry, you should have some shame and some towels. Um, <laughs> but I was reading some articles on um, how to combat the negative voice. And this article on Huffington Post, I liked, didn't love, I love very little, and I didn't love this, but I liked it. And I thought there were a couple good pointers in here. Negative, um, not, I'm sorry, nine ways to silence your inner critic. So I'm going to read you probably like four of them. I like I liked about four of their ideas. Um, one was um, a suggestion of putting negative stuff in a box in your brain. And I like that because I always like analogies. Obviously, you guys have figured that out by now. Um, but... So this says, when we're beating ourselves up, a tiny blunder is inflated to an epic typhoon of failure. So the next time a negative thought intrudes, take a few deep breaths and quickly narrow it down and put your problems into the smallest box possible. If, so if you think you screwed up in a meeting, instead of saying, I'm an idiot, I ruined my career, you can just say, I used, man, I used a poor choice of words, but visualize that sentence and put it into a tiny little box so you can see how your mind shows the actual size of the problem by putting in that little box. Uh, So I really like that. I think visual, visual cues or visual things are important. Um, And then I like this suggestion, try the power of possible thinking rather than positive thinking. Cause you guys know, I don't, I'm not a fan of the positive, especially when it has to do with the medical diagnoses. Um, (laughs) Trying not to make an AIDS joke there. Uh, so um, here they say, um, research has found that when you're down and out, you force yourself to say positive things, you end up feeling worse. That's because our internal lie detector goes off. And I really, really like that because I always want to call bullshit on people saying like, you know, turn it around in your head and think positive. It's like, eh. So I really like that they said that. Um, so this t- technique is called, called possible thinking which involves reaching for neutral thoughts about a situation. And so instead of saying like, I need to lose a thousand pounds, you say I can lose five pounds. And then once you get to the next five pounds, get to that five pounds, you can get to the next five pounds. So it's making things more realistic. Um, Another one that I liked um, was giving your inner critic a name. Um, So like, for example, 
my my negative critic was just named Kristen, but I should rename that. I don't think that's super healthy. Um, but they're saying give your inner critic a name, preferably a silly one, so it's harder to take seriously. No offense out there, but if you're named Frank, I think that name's hilarious. So I like to name my my inner voice Frank because it's like ah eh, Frank, Frank's here. Meh. It's it's it it does in my brain give less credit to my negative thoughts so essentially i can't work with anyone named frank because i just wouldn't um have faith in you because i don't know that's not the right word i wouldn't have i don't know basically you you guys know what i'm saying um and also levity helps they say in that you know and i obviously i agree that's the whole point of this podcast is to add some levity to the shit um this one, uh, this one I didn't love, but pick up the phone. So you call someone. But the problem with that is is that I hate talking on the phone, especially when I'm feeling negative. So if you call someone and kind of tell them the scenario, they're going to talk you off the ledge, which is good. But I wouldn't really find the strength to call them. Um, and... Uh, the last one was embrace your imperfections. So I agree. I think, I think it's really important because that's what gives, makes you, you. And you know, if you're only perfect, like no one likes you, you just, they just like you on Instagram, you know, they secretly hate you, but they'll like your pictures. Uh, and then another article on psychology today, uh, four ways to stop beating yourself up. Um, a couple of their suggestions. I mean, there's four, but uh, I'm just going to tell you a couple, um, which is what I was talking about earlier. So they suggest talking back. So that's what my therapist would do with me. So talking back to your inner critic is an important part of taking away its power. Simply telling the critic you don't want to hear what it has to say begins to give it give you a sense of choice in the matter, That which is true because you feel so powerless to this voice. When you hear the inner critic start to speak, you tell it to go away. Tell it you refuse to listen and tell it that you know it's a liar. Tell it that you are choosing instead to be kind to yourself. Um, and then they suggest to replace the critic. The best way to defeat the critic is to have an even stronger ally on your side. You need to you need to grow an inner voice that acts as your own best friend. In order to do this, you need to start noticing the good things about yourself. No matter what the inner critic has told you, you do have positive traits, although it may take a lot of effort to see them. Um, so, and then the, on the other one, I think I want, I thought I wanted to mention one more thing. Um, oh, uh, ask yourself what your best friend would say. And my best friend would say, um, can I call you back? Like, that's probably what my best friend would say. But it's true because, and I think this is a little cliche, but when someone beats themselves up, you never, ever, 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 ever agree with them. I mean, maybe a little bit, but not to the extent that they would. <laughs> so if someone says, you know, I am, I'm never going to find a husband or something. As that person in that mind frame, you really, truly feel like you will never find a significant other. But from the outsider's perspective, like, yes, you will. You're great. You're awesome. That's why I talk to you. And you will definitely find someone else to see it. And you know, so it's like you do talk in a different way when it's not yourself. So I think that's smart as well. Um, 
those are my roommates outside my room talking really loud. Hold on. Which is understandable because it's uh, midday and they are living human beings. So I can't be mad at them for being outside my room. But I do want to be like, meh, guys. But I won't. So anyway, um, do you guys have really strong negative self voices? And I wonder if a negative self voice is more... Uh, is more prevalent in people who just have straight up depression versus bipolar. I don't know if you guys are bipolar or have other like issues like schizophrenia or anything. Let me know if, if you feel a super strong negative voice, but it can lead to things like depression. Um, and I think that that helped, helped me. <laughs> help usually has a positive connotation. I do think the negative thoughts help me get to depression. So um, I think catching them at a young age and trying to turn them around can help from losing years of adulthood to depression. And um, I don't know, but the the negative self-talk, I, I guess I'll go into a little bit more detail of my own personal negative self-talk, but um, I really wasn't good in school. I'm not book smart at all. And when I would get a bad grade on a test, I would internalize that and tell myself I was really like an actual stupid person. And sometimes, and I think Jackson said this on the last episode, but he said he's surprised that people don't say, oh, good for you. You're lit because he feels kind of dumb or something. But it's the same thing for me. I feel like. I can't believe I can actually function as an adult on my own because I think I'm that dumb. And I know I'm not really that dumb, but sometimes I'm surprised that I can speak words and have coherent thoughts and and do small math or proper math when I write in a tip. Like I just sometimes I'm blown away that my brain can actually function on the level of basic human functionality or something um and so that's always bothered me and I didn't get into amazing colleges I went to a state school and I feel like when I first got into the world I started meeting into the world I mean after I graduated from college because we all know that's not reality but um when I started meeting people in the stand-up comedy community, a lot of them went to Ivy League schools or very good schools or had scholarships to school. And I started to feel incredibly inferior. Um, I didn't feel comfortable having conversations with them. I didn't think I would know the same references. Like they would reference literary people or, you know, like I just, I felt very intimidated. And I know that Stevie had that problem because she didn't go to college and she was very embarrassed about it. And I always make community college jokes. And it's because I can, because I basically essentially could only get into community colleges. Um, My SAT score is so insanely bad. There's an episode of Seinfeld that, uh, or a scene in Seinfeld that um, the Jerry and George are talking. I think it's like the opening scene or something and they're leaning against a building outside or something. And Jerry says... What was your, what what did you get on the SATs? And George says, you know, I tell you anything, right? And Jerry said, yeah. And George, go, George goes, well, that I'm taking to my grave. And uh, same. That's how bad 
my SAT scores were because I'm open and honest about everything. That is one thing I will literally, I won't even tell my future husband because he will just divorce me. So um, that really bothered me once I got around people who probably had really good SAT scores um, and hindered me from really interacting with a lot of people in the comedy community until I realized that I didn't really give an F as much. And that probably started a few years ago. Um, but you certainly will feel inferior, but, or I start, I certainly still feel inferior, but it doesn't, it doesn't go to the level where I then won't talk to the people. I'll talk to the people in the way that I would talk, uh, talk to them. I'm not going to try to be something I'm not. And I think that is progress because before I would cower away and feel like, I'm not welcome. But now I'm like, oh, well, I'll talk about this shit because that's what I know and that's what I'm into and that's okay and that makes us all different. Um, and then I never had a um, good body image of myself or face, face image as you guys have heard me talk about. Um, but aside from that, I feel like there are people who are just really, really good at something. And I feel like I never really found something that I was good at to really build my confidence up. And so I would feel like an inferior person there as well because I'd be around someone who's just like they have a really natural talent for art or they have a really natural talent for math or what I just I've never had a thing and I think not having that thing made me made me hate myself a lot but generally the most significant negative talk that I've had in my life is thinking that everyone hates me I have a fear that or I if I go somewhere I walk in and everyone hates me and they're all talking about it. But no one's thinking about me that much. And that's almost the more disappointing part. Like, I guess I'd rather have people hate me and talk about me than not talk about me at all. But that has affected me so much. The feeling of being hated for just being me. And I would agree with them, even though I didn't want to. So I don't know. So anyway, I'll stop going on and on and on about myself. Um, I'll save that for my next date. And I'll get into some segments. So last week, when Jackson was on the show, he inspired a new segment idea. And it was, it's essentially his idea. He said, he asked me a would you rather. And so I thought that would actually be a kind of cool segment. So would you rather... I'm going to pick one thing and another thing. Obviously, you guys know how would you rather works. But okay, so here's the would you rather, the first official would you rather. Would you rather have a lifetime of depression or would you rather have cancer three times but survive it and never have to worry about depression? And I genu genuinely, this is people with cancer, you're going to hate me. Uh, my friend Glenn, you'll probably hate me. I'd say I'd go for the cancer over the depression because number one, cancer, you get a lot more sympathy than you do with depression, right? So there you go right there. That's your answer. That's all you need is the sympathy. Um, yeah, I would go the cancer route because 
I think living well is better living well for a short amount of time in spurts, because if you have cancer three times, it'll be in spurts, but living well for a short amount of time versus an entire mediocre lifetime of struggling to wake up in the morning and to find purpose in anything and to feel like a functioning adult, that shit gets old. So, but the cancer thing, I would have to walk around maybe with no hair from the chemo um, if I if I went the chemo route, which I'm for sure I would because it's way easier and I wouldn't have to do as much research as trying to just do some homeopathic shit. Um, so, I mean, there would be that downfall and then, you know, feeling incredibly, incredibly, incredibly awful and sick and horrible and like you're, you're toxic inside and all of that. That sounds terrible, but that's how bad I think depression is that I'm like, man, I think that sounds more fun. Um, and I don't know if there's too much more to debate in it. I think the lifetime of depression, you feel subtle, like a subtle cancer patient. I think that my, <laughs> I made a joke a long time ago that my, uh, my lifestyle was essentially just like preparing to have cancer. Like, cause I, that's all I knew. All I did was feel s- sad and sleep all day long, which is basically just like, I could totally handle cancer because of, not totally, but I basically have been living like a sick person for so many years and I'm not really sick. So anyway, I think the joke might've been a little different because I feel like that wasn't very funny what I just said, but what I said before I think was funny. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so I'm going, uh, I'm going, would you rather the cancer, cancer, uh, cancer wins here. Um, and I'll do a who's sadder, even though I kind of wanted to replace the would you rather or replace who's sadder with would you rather. Um, But I'll do a who's sadder anyway, um, because I had written one down. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this who's sadder, but who's sadder. And this is more, this is not picking on. This is more actually being compassionate um, because I'm not always shallow. Um, Who's sadder, and I can speak to it because I, I, have driven slash drive for uber luckily i'm not doing as much lately but who sadder the uber driver or the bus driver and i think when i wrote this i must have been hating on uber a lot in my mind because i think the clear answer is bus driver so i don't even feel like it's that big of a debate i'll debate it a little bit but the bus driver they're dealing with 40 strangers at one time and I would say probably 10% of them at any given time are either insane or scary. I'm not trying to insult everyone who rides the bus. And I'm thinking LA bus, not like New York bus. Or I, I, I know specific LA bus seems to me a little bit scarier than the regular other city buses. Um, but you're, you're dealing with more the potential to run into maniacs, I feel like is slightly higher on a bus than it is in an Uber. One, because you're dealing with a lot more people, so the quantity makes it more likely, but also for obvious reasons. Um, And I feel very bad for the bus driver because not only are they dealing with a massive amount of strangers at one moment, they also have to deal with traffic 
and they're going in and out of bus lanes. And so there's a lot of merging. And I think merging in driving, especially in LA, the merging into traffic can get incredibly old. And I think people in LA are actually not that awful about letting people in. But the problem is with the bus is the bus wants to merge over. But I know for me personally as a driver, I'm like, shit, I don't want to stay behind the bus. So I try to zoom around the bus. So they're merging and they got people just trying to speed by rather than back up and let them in because you're going to be held up by the bus. And then especially with the right hand turns the bus is making, if you're a car and you're stuck behind it, or if it's, I'm sorry, not a right hand turn. If the bus stop is in the right hand turning lane, then there's people, the cars are get backed up behind you. I personally wouldn't be able to deal with the stress of being in the bus driver because I'd be trying to please everyone all at once. Like I wouldn't want to hold up the cars that are trying to turn right, but I also would want to let my passengers take their time to get on the bus and not pull away with one of them like halfway out the bus. Um, so I think bus driving in general, I, I think it takes a very special, very patient person to drive the bus. Where is the Uber driver? He's in his own car or she's in her own car and you can listen to your own music and you're dealing with crazy people, but more likely not as crazy, but more assholey. But also uh, you're dealing with um, not as many. So you could have a terrible passenger, but it's one at a time. Not There could be three terrible passengers at one time in the bus or 10 or however many. Um, but the Uber driver, I've been an Uber driver. So the problem with the Uber driver and the reason I think maybe I said in my head that this would be good for who's sadder is that it's, uh, it's very isolating. Even though you're with a lot of people at one, a lot throughout the day, no one really, for the most part, some people seem to really ask questions, um, and make conversation. I would say, I'd say it's like 60-40, like 60% want to talk, 40 don't. I'm 100% don't want to talk, but I will. And and when you are talking to the people, it still feels very lonely because you're picking them up. And a lot of the time people are doing something extracurricular, extracurricular or recreational or going out or going to dinner or whatever. And so it seems like Everyone that you pick up when you're driving Uber, for the most part, not everyone, but a lot, are doing something fun with other, you know, they're going to meet someone or, you know, they have plans and you're just alone in your car. So even though there's people there, you don't feel like there's people there. You feel like you're alone. And a lot of the Uber driving, my dog, my dog just farted. I really hope that the microphone picked it up. I don't think it did because my gain is turned down very low. But if it did pick up the fart, you're welcome. I'm picking up the smell right now. Um, and he just said, you're welcome to me. So anyway, um, <laughs> oh my God. And I have to go because I have to be somewhere. But uh, yeah, I would say, so there is a part of Uber that is very sad and is very isolating. And I actually had a really bad Uber driver recently who was a total scam artist and he picked us up and I, he missed the turn, right? He missed the turn. And as he was missing the first turn he needed to make, he was like, 
yeah, if you guys want to be generous and tip me and help me with my gas money, that'd be great. So it's like he was already lecturing us on tipping him. And I was like, dude, I get it. I'm an Uber driver, but you did miss the turn. And he got super defensive. I was just like, because now we're kind of going out of the way. And he's like, oh, I was going to turn over here. But where he was saying he was going to turn was literally going like a mile out of the way. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense because you're going to go east to go west. So, but it doesn't make sense. And so then he got really irritated. But I was trying to be nice. And I'm like, I totally, I drive for Uber. I get it. But you're going the wrong way and you're seeing it on your GPS. You're just being a scam artist. And so anyway, he had an attitude problem. And then that's my dog also. After he farts, he likes to shake off the smell and just really leave it lingering in the air. Um, but then he, he then he ended up driving us three miles like the wrong way. And I didn't say anything. And I just went with it because I didn't. It was so uncomfortable. And he seemed so aggressive and angry that I just went with it. But anyway, so there is some sadness to being an Uber driver. But I would say the bus driver wins. And the bus driver deserves, they're like the unsung heroes. They need to have a re, like a recognition day um, and whatever. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about is, and I'm going to go a little bit quicker, is this crazy thing that... Um, that uh, was brought to my attention by uh, listener Jesse, who's helping with the show, um, that uh, the murder of mentally ill people in Nazi Germany, the mass murder of mentally ill people in, in Germany. So it's so known that obviously Nazis were killing Jews, but they were also killing mentally ill people. And I found a cool article on this website called, um, the, it's from the National Institute for Biotechnology Information. I don't really know why this article is pertinent to biotechnology, but I feel like I should give credit because I'm going to be reading some exact words. So it's www.ncbi.nlm. This is not a joke. .nhi.gov. So if you want to find the article, that's where it is. And uh, here's a little excerpt. So this is FDAT shit, obviously. This is uh, this is the would you rather. Nazi genocide, mentally ill, or Jews? Just kidding. This, so this is not the would you rather. This is the FDAT shit. Okay, so here's a little expert. Excerpt. I'm not an expert. Excerpt. Although the Nazi genocide of Jews during World War II is well known, the concurrent Nazi genocide of psychiatric patients is much less widely known. An attempt was made to estimate the number of individuals with schizophrenia who were sterilized and murdered by the Nazis and to assess the effect on the subsequent prevalence and incidence of this of this disease. It is estimated that between 220,000 and 270,000 individuals with schizophrenia were sterilized or killed. This total represents between 73% and 100% of all individuals with schizophrenia living in Germany between 1939 and 1945. Post-war studies of the prevalence of schizophrenia in Germany reported low rates as expected. However, post-war rates of incidents of schizophrenia in Germany were unexpectedly, unexpectedly high. The Nazi genocide of psychiatric patients was the greatest criminal act in the history of psychiatry. It was also based on what we now know now known to be erroneous genetic theories and had no apparent long-term effect on the subsequent incidence of schizophrenia. 
The idea of killing patients in psychiatric hospitals first surfaced prominently in 1920 in a publication by Carl Binding, a lawyer, and this dude named Alfred Hoke. Obviously, they didn't say this dude. I added that. That was my little, that was my little personality. Um, Alfred Hoke, a psychiatrist, entitled Permission for the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life. Just listen to that title, title of this book. Permission for the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life. And the book posed this question. Is there human life which has so far forfeited the character of something entitled to enjoy the protection of law that its prolongation represents a perpetual loss of value, both for its bearer and for society as a whole? The author's answers were clearly affirmative, and they describe such individuals as being, quote, mentally dead, and quote, on an intellectual level, which we only encounter way down in the animal kingdom. I'm sorry, but Germans, they're just like, they're nuts. I'm part German, and I'm going for it. Like, we're nuts. That's insane. Even in the 40s, it's just, I could see in maybe like year 400 BC to think that. But I mean, you know, we got cars at this point. You know, I can't believe you have cars and also still thinking like this. Anyway, the authors emphasize the economic burden of such individuals to Germany. The economic argument was repeated in subsequent discussions of this issue, such as in a 1932 article entitled The Eradication of the Less Valuable from Society, in which the author, psychiatrist Berthold Kinn, estimated that mentally ill individuals were costing Germany 150 million Reichsmarks per year. Hitler was interested in these ideas, and it is said to have discussed said to have discussed a program to kill chronic mental patients in 1933, shortly after assuming the, ch- the chancellorship. He said that, quote, it is right that the worthless lives of such creatures should be ended and that this world result, or I'm sorry, and this would result in certain savings in terms of hospitals, doctors, and nursing staff. Prophetically, he suggested that such a program would be easier to implement during wartime when public opposition would be less. So right there, he knew it was effed up. Because if you wanted to present this to become law or whatever and do it when people weren't really paying as much attention, you knew it was the wrong thing to do. So anyway, I think that's just insane. And I think this was mostly just mostly schizophrenia. I don't know if it went to other... Um, mental illnesses but any hoosers those germans they cray they're the ones who uh were mentally ill but anyway well you guys that's it for me i gotta head out but thank you so much for listening thank you for sharing the show with a friend if you don't have a friend to share it with make a friend to share the show and let me know what you think about the show you can Rate the show on iTunes, five stars preferably. And uh, thank you for um, some cool reviews that I've gotten in the past uh, couple days. I actually want to read one, but I don't have it open and I'm kind of in a hurry here. Let's see if it comes right up. Yeah, I'll read it. It's coming right up. So got a really nice review. I've gotten so many nice ones. It's hard to choose, um, but I really like this. It was super complimentary, complimentary to me. So I'm going to read it because this is the show about negative self-talk. And I'm going to give myself some positive talk by reading this very flattering review. 
So by P. Bear, thank you, P. Bear. It's titled, Kristen is the real deal, exclamation point. That's important to note. Smart, talented, authentic, and natural. We are so lucky to have her. Another exclamation point. Thank you for the mentally chill podcast, Kristen. Ooh, another exclamation point. You are helping many people. Another exclamation point. Now there's an episode of Seinfeld where Elaine's using too many exclamation points. Question mark. Yeah, exclamation point. But this is not that. I think this is a r- appropriate amount of exclamation points. So thank you so much, P-Bear. I love that review. And I'll read more as the shows go. Please support the show on Patreon. Help me help you. I'm a little Jerry Maguire here. Help me help you. And by helping me, I can pay off this new equipment that I have. And I can produce merchandise. And guess what? I would love to have this show maybe pay a bill of mine. For example, just for example, and I'm, of course, I'm in a hurry and this is what I'm doing right now, but just so you know, there is a website or a podcast called Last Podcast on the Left. It's a very good podcast. They make on Patreon $25,000 a month. $25,000 a month. So if I could get to like, you know, a smidgen of that, I would be happy. 25 grand a month for a podcast. Guys, it's my dream. Because again, I'd love, love, love to pay a bill off the show uh, if possible. So please go donate $2 or $3 or $10 or $20 a month, whatever you can do. $5,000 a month. Uh, do it. But thank you again so much for listening. And remember, stay sad enough to listen, but not too sad. Bye, guys. <laughs>